Hey everyone, it's Beverly Hallberg. Welcome to a special pop-up episode of She Thinks, your favorite podcast from the Independent Women's Forum where we talk with women and sometimes men about the policy issues that impact you and the people you care about most. Enjoy. Hey there, this is Jennifer Braceres with the Independent Women's Forum. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Tara Ross, an attorney and author of several books on the Electoral College, including Enlightened Democracy, The Case for the Electoral College, and the, Indep- excuse me, the Indispensable Electoral College, How the Founders' Plan Saves Our Country from Mob Rule. Tara has published widely in law reviews and print media across the country, and she is the narrator of two popular videos on Prager University that explain the Electoral College in less than five minutes. So I hope all of our listeners will go over to PragerU when they're done listening and take a look at those. Um, Today, Tara is going to explain why all of us need to educate ourselves about our system for electing the president as laid out in the Constitution and why we need to be concerned about current efforts to ditch the Electoral College in favor of a national popular vote. Welcome, Tara. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Um, As I hope most of our listeners know from their high school civics classes, American presidential elections are not really one massive nationwide vote but rather the aggregate of 51 Democratic elections held on the same day in the 50 states and the District of Columbia, the winner, of course, being the person who receives a majority of state electoral votes. But many people probably don't know why our founding fathers set up presidential elections this way, and I'm hoping that you can give our listeners a little bit of background on that. Sure. And I, and I like the way you said that, by the way, because you said 51 Democratic elections, an aggregate of them. And people, I think, don't always realize we do have Democratic processes in this country. We have 51 of them. <laughs> and then we combine right. it with an element of federalism, um, the state-by-state portion of it. Now, the reason the founders set up this um, this process instead of something kind of more simple and more straightforward, just a tally of all the people, was it was a result of a compromise at the Constitutional Convention. If you read the notes of those debates, back and forth between small state and large state delegates, they just could not agree. The small states were really sure they were going to get outvoted time and time again by the majority of citizens in the big states. Um, They discussed legislative selection. That was a problem because then they thought the president would be controlled by the Congress. Of course, they didn't like national direct election. They just went back and forth all over the place. (laughs) They couldn't figure it out. And then finally, they settled upon this compromise, which, of course, um, leaves a lot of discretion to the states to figure out how they want to represent themselves in this electoral college, but um, also ensures that a presidential candidate can only win if they get a kind of a cross-regional vote from many states and many parts of the country. And so what were some of their concerns about why a national popular vote wouldn't be practical? Well, I think they probably had had several thoughts about that. One, one, like I said, the small states just 
they felt they would lose time and time again. Um, they were they were minority. They knew it, and that they were going to fight against that. There was there were some of those delegates that weren't even authorized to vote for anything except for one state, one vote representation um, in the Congress, and so they just they felt that very strongly. But I think probably the other thing to look at is just what the structure of our Constitution is built upon. Now, if you're going to understand any institution in our Constitution, the most important thing to know is that we are not a pure democracy. We are a a republic or a combination of several different forms of government. The founders had, of course, just fought this revolution because they had no self-government or they had no representation in Parliament, so it's not like they were trying to create a country that was not self-governing. They they did want to be self-governing, but they knew something that we have forgotten today, which is even if they had been given representation in Parliament, they would have been outvoted over and over and over again by the majority of citizens at home in mm. England. So they were right. confronted with this dilemma. How can you create a self-governing nation, but also make sure that you are offering sufficient protections against you know, human nature <laughs> and, the, and a, a bare majority that would just tyrannize uh, even very large minority groups? So we see lots of checks and balances in our Constitution and, you know, presidential vetoes or a Senate with one state, one vote representation against the House with one one person, one vote, supermajority requirements to amend the Constitution. All of these things are just kind of efforts to slow down the majority so that bare and unreasonable majorities will not rule in this country, but that, you know, large and reasonable ones, of course, can. And so that is the the context in which the Electoral College is created, and it reflects lots of those same principles. So you hear a lot of arguments today, um, not just against the Electoral College, but even against the Senate, um, against the Supreme Court, having life tenure, and there seems to be at least a nascent movement in this country in favor of, I think, what they would say is more democratization and, mm-hmm. and having the people decide everything. And I'm wondering if you can help explain to the voters why that's not a good idea. And, and in particular, um, in particular, I did actually if you could explain to the voters, if you could explain to the listeners. Um, but no, in particular, what I want to point out is some people often say, well, progressives and liberals are for more democratization, and conservatives tend to be for less democratization. So they support our keeping our institutions the way they are and not liberalizing them. But I think that's actually really short-sighted. I don't think it's political at all, even if the polls kind of break down that way right now. Um, and I'm hoping you can explain why uh, erasing these checks and balances in favor of more populism and democracy is a bad idea irrespective of which political party you belong to. Which it absolutely is. <laughs> Regardless of party, it absolutely is a bad idea. I think there's a lot of, um, my perception is there's just a lot of misunderstandings about not only the Electoral College, but you know, lots of these different checks and balances in our Constitution. I think people, they think, oh, well, we created this because travel was difficult, or we created it because communication was hard, or it was created to protect slave owners, or it was, it was created to, um, because they didn't really trust the people and they just wanted the elites to rule. And, and so, you know, we're better than that now. <laughs> so we can ditch all of these devices and we don't need them anymore. We can just be more democratic. Well, I, I would argue that 
everybody needs to stop and take a deep breath <laughs> and look at this again, because that, that is not the reason why any of these checks and balances were created. The reason that all of the checks and balances, including the Electoral College, were created is because our, our founders understood human nature. They understood that people are fallible. They understand that power corrupts. They understand you can't send anybody to any nation's capital for too long without expecting it to go to their head a little bit, right? So they, they put checks and balances on everybody. They didn't think anybody was trustworthy. They didn't think the state was trustworthy. They didn't think the national government was trustworthy. They didn't think government officials were trustworthy. They didn't think voters were completely trustworthy. They didn't think that the judiciary was trustworthy or the president. I mean, let, go down the list. And then one historian, uh, Carol Birkin, says something really interesting. And she says, you know, they sat in the room, this room, the most likely men to be elected to the first Senate or to be the first president, and they didn't even trust themselves. They sat there and they debated how to put checks and balances on themselves. They knew that everybody can fall to this. You know, every, everybody is susceptible to just, you know, for just the stuff going to your head. And so they, they wanted to create a government that would be a protection against all of that so that even when you have somebody in any one of these spots, whether it's the state or the national or the, or the voters are being, you know, in the grip of emotion, whatever it is, that there will be a check and balance against that. Power will work against power. And that is the entire premise of our Constitution. It's why we have a Senate. The Senate was actually supposed to represent the states themselves as, a, as an entity. And we mm -hmm. took that away when we passed the 17th Amendment, of course. And now, of course, the states have no protection for themselves in Congress. And they, the Congress passes so down unfunded state mandates all the time. Yeah. Right. So that's an interesting point that I think a lot of people who are against the Electoral College will say, well, we democratized um, how we elect senators and the sky hasn't fallen. Right. I mean, now you can yeah. make the argument about unfunded mandates and, and, and I agree with you on that point. But they would say, you know, basically we keep taking along. And, and mm -hmm. so how would you respond to the argument it, what would be so bad about moving to a national popular vote? I, and I think, before you answer that, I think I have a little bit of a clue as to your answer from the subtitle <laughs> of your most recent book, which is How the Founders Planned to Save Their Country from Mob Rule. Um, and I think that's probably one of the reasons. But, but tell the listeners um, what would be so bad about it, about having a national popular well, vote. I mean, I guess I would agree the sky hasn't fallen exactly, but I would disagree that nothing has changed or that things, you know, got better or even stayed the same. I don't think they got better or stayed the same. I think they got worse. I, you know, there were unfunded state mandates. I mean, these kind of things are more common now. Even just in general, the state cannot defend itself if the federal government tries to usurp some area of state authority, and the federal government is just much bigger, much more intrusive. Think about how angry we all are at each other all the time, because now we are trying to come up with one-size-fits-all solutions in D.C. for things that used to be handled at the state level, and that might right. still be handled at the state level if, if our senators were still there to, to defend the state. So I, right. I would just disagree. I think that life has not necessarily always gotten right. better because of that. So you, so but, you disagree but, and, with the premise, but, but what, I, what I like to tell you know, a lot of my, my colleagues and friends who are against the Electoral College is that if we got rid of the Electoral College, essentially the voters of the major metropolitan areas would elect the president almost all the time, right? Mm -hmm. and, 
And, and, and so the interests of people who live outside the metropolitan areas wouldn't be represented at all. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's how, you know, the mob would basically make decisions for the rest of us. Right. I mean, I think there would actually be many more effects than people generally appreciate. Um, I'm reminded of a quote by JFK, who was actually a defender of the Electoral College, and he stood on the Senate floor as a senator and said, you know, it's like we have this entire uh, solar system of governmental power, and you can't propose to change one thing about it and then expect everything else to be unaffected. And I would add to that, you know, for instance, if you change the gravitational pull of the sun, you're going to change Earth orbit, the Earth orbit, and you, it might make it un- uninhabitable. It might be too hot or too cold or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's just you can't – you're going to change things. Now, some of the things that I think would change, one is, you know, you referenced that I do think big cities would clearly have a much bigger effect on our elections, and that's not a small deal. Um, my friend Trent England wrote something for USA Today earlier this month, that he, and he basically talked about how the rural areas would become serfs and that that's historically what has happened in that kind of a situation. And that's true. And that's not fair because farmers, you know, or whoever provide food and oil and all of this sort of stuff for the big cities. So why should the big cities get to dictate to these people and, you know, force service, basically? These people should, in, in, the, in the less densely populated parts of the country, they need their, their voice, too, so that they are not mm-hmm. tyrannized by people who are just using their products. Um, that's one effect, I think, and it, we can see how easily it would go there just by looking at what Hillary Clinton did. She got 20% of her vote from only two states, New York and California. Imagine wow. if we actually rewarded that kind of behavior, how much worse it would be. I think there are other things right, that people because, don't think about. What the Electoral yeah. College does is it requires coalition building. And so, right. you know, regardless of what you think of President Trump, the interesting thing about the election is he built a really unique coalition by bringing back some of those blue-collar Reagan Democrats in the Rust Belt that mm-hmm. hadn't voted Republican in a long time. And so the, what the Electoral College system did was it, for, it forced him to look beyond what might have been his traditional Republican base and reach out to those people. Without the Electoral College, he wouldn't have had to do that. And Hillary Clinton did not do mm-hmm. that, and, in fact, that's why she lost. She did pretty much the opposite. She was afraid, actually, that she was going to win the electoral vote and lose the popular vote. So she ran back to her safe areas and spent a lot of time and resources driving up the vote there, which, of course, is, I mean, it did get her the popular vote. but That's not what she was supposed to be trying for. It was the precise opposite of the strategy that she needed to win. And she would have been better served if she had just gone to Wisconsin or Michigan or any of those states out out there and, and listened to those voters to see why they're so upset. And and a lot of people have been very upset about lots of what's been happening in the past four or five, six years. And it it was her job to go out and listen to that. And if you talk to voters in in those areas about why they switched their vote from Democrat to Republican, they will basically tell you, I felt like Trump was listening and I felt like Clinton was not. Right. Now, do you feel that the recent push to get rid of the Electoral College is a response to the results of the election in 2016? Yeah. I mean, I, it's just become so emotional. And it's, it's sad to me because, you know, I, I, it just it's not a part of an institution. It can go either way at any time. Um, Hillary Clinton, of course, thought she was about to win the Electoral College vote and lose the popular vote. 
that didn't happen, but it could have. In 2000, Al Gore thought the same thing. He actually had lawyers preparing a defense. <laughs> he thought he was going to have to defend an electoral college victory to the public, even as he lost the popular vote. Of course, we know the precise opposite is what ended up happening. But it, right. to me, it just shows how easily it can go either way at any time. I do think we are in a series of close election years, uh, much like we were after the Civil War. There were there was a string of, of time that was just like what we're in now. Multiple close elections, a few elections where there's a discrepancy between the electoral and popular vote. And it was just a difficult time in our history. And nobody was doing a good job of listening to anybody on the other side. Over time, I would argue the Electoral College was one factor that forced us away from that because it was unproductive to do anything else. <laughs> you know, Democrats had to start listening to people not like themselves, or they literally could not win. They did not have enough safe states. Republicans could barely win if, if, as long as you know, they kept their safe areas, but if the Democrats made any inroads at all, then they would lose. So they, too, had to kind of go on defense. And over time, of course, you end up with huge landslides like you see in Coolidge or FDR. We, it, we, it fixed itself. So right now I wish people would stop getting so angry at the system. It's not the system's fault. It's because nobody is really doing a good job of coalition building, and nobody, nobody is really doing a great job of what we're supposed to do. And the first mm -hmm. party that will take a hard inward look and fix themselves will start to win like FDR or Reagan did. Right, right. Interesting. So let's talk briefly about the current state of play. Most people, I think, know that, that the Electoral College is enshrined in our Constitution and that it would take a constitutional amendment to, um, to change it, but they don't know that there's this stealth effort going on at the state level to do an end run around the Constitution and get rid of the Electoral College by just having states agree sort of not to participate in it. Um, so maybe you can just spend a minute explaining that and explaining why um, why that's not a good idea and what, what's happening on the ground with that. Sure. There, there is a stealth effort. It's called the National Popular Vote, and they are asking states to sign a compact, basically just a contract among states, where all of these states that sign this contract agree to give their presidential electors to the winner of the National Popular Vote. So... California, which has already signed this compact, agrees that if Donald Trump wins in 2020, they'll give all of their electors to Donald Trump, assuming the compact is in effect. The compact does not go into effect, however, until it has 270 electors on board, because that is how many it takes to win a presidential election. Um, they currently have 14 states plus D.C. all signed on to this contract. That is 189 electors that have agreed to this. They've been working really hard this year. They've gotten several states on board, you know, in the wake of all this emotion following 2016. Um, they just lost Nevada, which we, I mean, I honestly thought they were about to get Nevada. The state legislature passed it, but then the governor, to his credit, uh, vetoed it. Um, it's failed in Maine and it's failed in Minnesota. It is still pending in Oregon. Um, so it, it is very much an effort that is alive and, and working to get to that 270 number. Now, of course, if they get to that 270 number, it, it's looking like they could do it with around 21 states on board. And if they get to that 21 number, or the, sorry, the 270 number with 21 states, then they will have effectively eliminated the Electoral College. It will exist on paper, but for all practi practical intents and purposes, it'll be gone. And what's interesting about that is you say they could do it with 21 states, but to amend mm -hmm. the Constitution, 
you would need three-quarters of the states to pass a constitutional amendment. So that really seems sort of sneaky. Um, and and see, it seems, you know, it sort of seems like it's cheating, right? But I think that most, a lot of people aren't aware that this is going on, and I hope that people will educate themselves as to whether or not their state has signed on to this compact um, and, you know, become active in speaking with right. their state representatives about it and educating their neighbors and and their local officials about why this wouldn't be good for for their state or for the country. Um, Absolutely. That's, and that's it, what it, I'm hoping. It makes a difference. I mean, in Nevada, the reason that it was vetoed, so this is a Democratic governor who everybody expected to sign it. Now, I do not think the Electoral College is partisan, as, I, as I've said, but people perceive it that way. So it was a big deal for him to veto this. But he vetoed it because he, his office was just slammed with phone calls from what I gather. I mean, and I mean slammed. And they, it was people just calling and saying, we do not want you to sign this. Nevada will not be represented in the presidential election if you do. And he respected that. And, and there were uh, legislators in Maine, too, that were swayed at the last minute by just an influx of calls and emails and such. So it definitely matters when you call and let your representatives know what you think about this. So definitely pay attention in your state to what's happening. Well, that gives me some hope that people are educating themselves about our electoral college system um, and taking action to defend it. Um, where can people find out more about your work and um, your efforts to, to defend the electoral college? Well, you can follow me on social media. I, I have Twitter, Facebook. I, I have a mess of stuff. <laughs> you can find it on TaraRoss.com, T-A-R-A-R-O-S-S.com. And uh, all, all of the links are posted there. But I guess I probably mostly post on Twitter about the Electoral College stuff or, or on my Facebook page a little bit. Great. And your latest book is The Indispensable Electoral College, which I really want to recommend to everybody. It's actually indispensable reading for, I think, <laughs> any educated citizen of this country. So thank you. thank you so much for being with us today, Tara. Um, we hope that you, our listeners, take away something new from today's conversation. And if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, we'd love it if you could take a moment to leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. This helps ensure that our message reaches as many Americans as possible. We also hope you'll share this episode and let your friends know that they can find more She Thinks episodes on their favorite podcast app. From all of us here at Independent Women's Forum, you're in control. I think, you think, she thinks.